You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome to tfm's books and comic show i am just one of the hosts here matthew rushing and with me as he is pretty much every single time we get together these days it is the one and only christopher jones how are you doing chris well, Matthew, I'm wishing that I weren't the one and only Christopher Jones because I could use a few clones of myself right now to get through the magazine deadlines before the holidays, record podcasts, and do all that stuff. So you're saying uh, you need a little uh, Michael Keaton's multiplicity happening. Yeah, I think that would be good. However, there's no way I'm putting the seventh clone on editing duty because he's just going <laughs> to, you know, every other word's going to be pizza, pizza, pizza. <laughs> well, I can understand that. I, as we record, I'm I'm thinking to myself, man, I could use some pizza right now. So, <laughs> oh goodness. Well, we're uh, we're excited to be back um, this week, Chris. You're going to be uh, interviewing Una McCormick about her brand new book, the autobiography of Admiral Catherine Janeway. That's right. She got the promotion, and so um, I'm uh, I'm really excited to hear that one because of our time zones. I won't be a part of the interview uh, with trying to coordinate Tokyo. And uh, the Pacific Northwest, as well as London, doesn't really work out so well. So <laughs> yeah, well, she's in Cambridge, but yeah, it's the it's a very very difficult task to uh, coordinate that. I think we probably only managed to do it once, haven't we? We had her on the orb a long time ago to talk about Garrett. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely always been difficult uh, to to make that happen, you know, because of the way time zones work. I, I feel like you know we what we really need to do is to go in some sort of orb trance together uh, and record <laughs> there, and that would probably uh, have really helped us out. But before we uh, get into our news section, of course, just want to remind you, you know, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and just make sure that uh, you're subscribed so you get literary checks as soon as it drops. If you uh, happen to hit us up on Apple podcasts or iTunes, we will read your review out on the show. So, uh, Chris, uh, we we have a couple of things we wanted to talk about this week, and, and basically it is we want to review the first two issues of the Voyager comics that have just started coming out. It's called Seven's Reckoning. And uh, so really interesting that, of course, we have a Voyager-laden show this week. So it's all Voyager all the time uh, here on Literary Tracks this week. And uh, what I, I thought was really interesting about this comic is that we learned right there from the first issue that this takes place not too long after Seven has joined the crew. And most importantly, and who cares about that? Catherine Janeway got a haircut, uh, and so that's really, I think, the most important thing uh, throughout the two issues that I found. I love that opening, and you know, I I haven't watched 
Voyager carefully straight through in a long time. And I was thinking after I read this that I need to go back and check the episodes around this time to see when her hair changed. Because I suspect that the writer Dave Baker and the artist Angel Hernandez probably did check that. And it probably does fit in pretty well. But I love the fact that we open this comic with Tuvok making comments about Janeway's haircut. And I thought that it felt exactly like the kind of little opening that we would get on a TV episode leading into something more serious. And right from the start, I felt like Dave did a really good job here of capturing the voices of the characters throughout the whole story. I I do agree with you. I, I think that this really did feel like a, a Voyager episode. And, and what was most interesting was, you know, they the the whole thing uh, becomes about uh, this storyline of Voyager running across a derelict ship that is just massive. And it turns out that it is a generational ship that uh, these people are trying to actually get back home much in the same way that Voyager is. They, they've gotten lost in the Delta Quadrant, and they have been traveling for almost a thousand years trying to get home, and it turns out that their warp core has gone kaput. Obviously, this being a generational ship, you also have um, people in, in cryostasis that they're trying to keep alive um, with all of this. And um, what was interesting to me is is how immediately, you know, this stuck out because this has been seen a couple of times actually in the literature and books by, I think, actually Dayton Ward. We kind of run into massive derelict ships. Uh, so I was, I was immediately thinking, I wonder if, um, you know, the author here of the comics had, had read some of those books as well because it's it's very similar. But People don't stay asleep when you get onto these ships, of course. <laughs> and I, I thought that the most interesting thing here, you know, this is called Seven's Reckoning, but she didn't seem to have as big a role as I thought she was going to have in the sense of, like, what's really going on in this story is it's it's this race that we run into and the way in which they have uh, a kind of a caste society it reminded me of, of things like all the way from Spartacus to, um, you know, uh, any any type of caste society we run into here in, in, in our world, even now or in the, in the past. And, and watching that play out with how they view life was actually the most fascinating thing about the comic to me. Yeah, I think Seven will have a bigger role in the final two parts than she did here, because this is very much the setup. And you do see towards the end of the second comic how she's becoming more and more involved. But it's an interesting point about the fact that the generational ship concept has been used in the literature. I think here, though, it really supports the core of the story, which is about how stories play out over time in the first place. And to really show that, I think you need to set up a long time frame, which is where we get the almost a millennium that they've been traveling here, and then their history goes back further. And so in that situation, I think it's a good setting for the story that Dave wants to tell. The The whole concept of the aliens were quite interesting, and it reminded me of some other things that we've seen recently in Star Trek, uh, as recently as on Discovery with the Kelpians and the Ba'ul, where you had one race that was dominant and then it got flipped around 
but uh, I'm curious to see more about how that plays out in the next two parts. Yeah, I mean, and one of the things that's really fascinating about this race is the fact that they are beholden to this idea of story. And what was really interesting to me was to see how, uh, you know, Battlestar Galactica has that phrase. Yeah. It, it's happened before and it will happen again. Yeah. And that's basically exactly what these aliens believe too. This idea of we have these recurring stories and they continually play out over the generations and over the thousands of years. And yet at the same time, there's also this underlying thing almost of of that, you know, each of the casts have their own story. And mm. so it becomes kind of about, you know, like who writes the history. Yeah. Uh, and it is is about how you see it. But also there's an interesting bit of relativism in there as well, you know, is that we all have quote unquote our own story, our own truth, and, and like then it becomes hard of of trying to figure out in Seven's position who do you trust? And she seems to have very much by the end of the second issue picked a side and decided which one she is willing to throw her support behind, which I thought was really interesting as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening, I think, just thematically in this comic, which are really interesting to me because the setup has been good. You know, it's a four issue series. So, the first two issues are kind of the setup and the last two issues will be the payoff. And so it really comes down to me here with these two issues like they're good, but the payoff needs to be excellent. You know, you don't want it to kind of fall off in any way. So I can't honestly wait to see where this is going to go, because a lot of times when reading these books, I can kind of predict where things are going to mm-hmm. go. And I'm not quite sure exactly how this is going to play out, because there are a lot of different options you could take, I think. Yeah, I, I feel the same. Yeah, it is an interesting point that each side has their own story. And by injecting Seven into the situation, especially Seven compared with one of the other crew members, you get this third person objective view from the start because she's so, especially at this point, you know, she's only been aboard Voyager for a short time in the time period where this comic is set. So she's still very much Borg in the way that she thinks. She's still very analytical. There's a whole series throughout, especially the first comic of her and Tuvok being paired together. And you see how similar they are. Right. And uh, what is it? Um, Samantha Wildman is with them and she says like, boy, you, you two are peas in a pod and they don't get the joke, but Wildman's watching them (laughs) like, wow, you know, Vulcans and Borg drones, you guys are so similar to each other (laughs) in how you analyze things. But it is a great way to look at how stories play out over time by having kind of a cold third-person view going into that. But as you say, she does very much come down on one side, and I do find it interesting that she comes down on that side in the way that she does where she's concerned about the group that's being oppressed and abused, given that she has just herself come from a situation where she was part of a group and she really didn't have her own free will. Do you have any thoughts on why, as a recently detached Borg drone, she might so quickly identify with the group as she does? Um, It... it It makes me, 
I mean, it, it it struck me as kind of odd, too, because, you know, she does come from this, uh, you know, she comes from the idea of the Borg, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, they all work as one and there is no hierarchy other than like, you know, the queen, which is the, the one who facilitates the uh, ability for all the Borg to fulfill their roles perfectly, you know, and they, they're all supposed to just work in sync with one another. And so it is really weird to me that, you know, she would choose this side and it seems to be a quick identification then for her uh, around the idea of, of more like personal freedom uh, and, and being able to choose one's own destiny. At least that's kind of the, the way it seems with the these comics, because th- this group has been kept down by the group in charge, the ruling class, basically. And they've been kept down for a very specific reason is that they secrete a pheromone which keeps this ruling class alive much longer than they would if they weren't around. And so in some ways, you know, it's like uh, space health insurance (laughs) for them. And so uh, they want these people to be under their control, basically, uh, and, and, and to not be living their quote unquote own lives because they need them for the longevity of their race, which is a really fascinating idea that they would be in that position. And so again, it does seem a little bit strange that seven is immediately choosing one side over the other. I I don't actually quite know why that's the case, Mm. but I do feel like the, 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 the most interesting part about this is that we are going to find out as is, you know, like when it the comic is named Seven's Reckoning. So really, I feel like they're, they're telling us this is going to be about her making that choice. This is about the reckoning of her choosing to be more of an individual than basically a drone. Yeah. And so that's kind of fascinating to me if if we're if that's what this comic is going for. And I think I'm ready for that to happen now. I'm ready for us to see how that plays out. Yeah, the the bit about the pheromone was really interesting because it it's just kind of thrown in there. It almost feels like I mean, it's a justification in the story, but it feels almost like a throwaway line because you don't really return to it. But if you think about this in terms of the idea that a story stretches over time because the whole core of this story is the fact that their ship itself is a story, they say. You know, everything about their existence is the story. The pheromone perpetuates the story. They're actually keeping alive mm-hmm. their own problem in in a way. Right. And th- that it's kind of an interesting way to express the idea of, of what supports, what propels a story, even in history, what propels history and and keeps civilization going and what keeps, you know, two sides going back and forth. They they literally mm-hmm. by being in the presence of the other side live longer than than they normally would. So yeah. that it's it's yeah, it's an interesting concept. Yeah. So I mean I think to me, you know, the the thing that I'm I'm uh I'm really interested in is to see where this goes. I think they've they've set up a a very good beginning. Uh, they they've got a great foundation now for this series, and so hopefully, um, you know, it'll it'll finish off really well. That's all you can hope when you're reading a story. So I'm excited though. I, I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited for what we got coming up next year. You know, as we talked about last uh, episode, we've got some great things uh, around the corner here. In fact, in 2021, you know, first book out of the gate is the new Picard book, but uh, it's going to be focusing on the Titan, which you know, I'm I'm very, very excited about. So we've got great stuff coming up and I uh, can't wait to get there, Chris. Yeah, looking forward to it. So we will see what happens to Seven in the final two parts of this comic. And we'll talk about those later on when they come out later in the new year. And I guess now it's time to hop on with Una and talk about the autobiography of Catherine Janeway. Well, it's my great pleasure to be joined today by Una McCormick to talk about her new book, The Autobiography of Catherine Janeway. Una, it's wonderful to see you face-to-face for the first time in a long time. It's really good to see you. Really nice to be back as well. Thank you. It's great. You know, we we, we chat on Twitter, but uh, it's been a while since we've been on the podcast together. We always have a a complicated time arrangement to work out when you're on the show with me being in Tokyo and then Matthew being over there in the Pacific and then you being there in England. So today it's just going to be you and me talking about this book. It's about as tricky a time set up as we could manage actually, isn't it? I think. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. It's it's what I've dealt with a lot in recent years in my work because I edit a magazine about British culture and also one about the US and business. And I often have to deal with London and say, uh, San Francisco and New York and Tokyo at the same time. But that's uh, not recording. So it's a little bit easier. Well, you know, the first thing I want to ask you is about the origin of the project, because we've had the autobiographies of Kirk and Picard, which were written by David Goodman. And now finally, we have Janeway's autobiography. And I was curious how you were chosen to be, shall we say, the ghostwriter for Catherine here. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like I was her ghostwriter, actually. It really does feel like that, you know, she and I sat down with a, you know, I was kind of invited over to her office and sat there and we had a giggle over interviews and things. Um, Well, I think those two autobiographies have been successful um, and Titan were pleased with them. The Voyager anniversary was coming up, so it was natural to want to do Janeway. And I think very rightly as well, they said, well, we'd like a woman to write this one. Who is a woman? (laughs) who writes Star Trek. And there are two of us, basically, that, that write Star Trek books. But Kirsten Byer's very busy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they, they kind of came down the list uh, rapidly and, <laughs> uh, and reached me, <laughs> which uh, I, I, was, I was delighted about. So, uh, so I, think, I think, yeah, I think they wanted a woman, uh, a woman Star Trek writer. And, um, and I was on the spot. So that's good. It's naturally as well. Kirsten obviously knows a, a, is, is much more expert in Voyager than I am. She's written, um, you know, the Voyager relaunch pretty much. But uh, it, but it came to me, and I said, yeah, that would be fantastic. Because although um, Voyager isn't obviously, it's not my Star Trek, which is very much Deep Space Nine. I've watched it, and I, I knew it, and I dipped in. So I thought it's time to go back. And um, I, I love Kate Mulgrew. I think she's marvelous. I'd seen her at conventions and things. I thought this this will be really good fun. So let's go back and and do this all fresh and see where it takes us. Well, of course, it makes sense that they would want a woman to write it. But I think you sell yourself a little bit short saying that it was either you or Kirsten, because, (laughs) you know, I think you're the perfect person to write this book because, you know, I've watched you since your daughter was born and, and I've watched your daughter grow. You know, I follow your, your 
comments, your posts about her. And as a mother, I think that makes you perfect to write the story of Janeway because Janeway is very much a nurturing soul and a mother to the crew. And what I found interesting about this autobiography was learning more about her childhood and how her mother and her father and her parents, grandparents and all, nurtured her. And I think that's a lot of what I want to talk about today, actually. And and I think you were the perfect person to write that. It was very refreshing to write. Uh, the sort of the setup I imagined for her was was quite um was very was very nurturing, um, as you say. It's a tight family unit of her, her mother, her father, a sister, but embedded in a, in a sort of wider family network of her her mother's family. They're sort of on the spot in a rural area of the states, and then close connections to her to the other side of the family as well. And it was, I, th- I think, a lot of characters that I usually write are people like Garrick, who perhaps that family relationship not so <laughs> not so friendly and, and comfortable and nurturing and it, it's interesting to write a character like that a, a character who's got a strong I mean you know her, she she doesn't get on with her sister they rub each other up the wrong way she feels a sort of distance to her mother because the sister's obviously the mother's favorite and she's the father's favorite so there's all the usual kinds of um, strains that exist in any family but there was also a lot of love and nurturing. And it's interesting to write a character like that, that doesn't have the sort of usual mummy or daddy issues, that sort of thing. Tilly, in the book I wrote about her, has very uh, sort of tense relationship with a, with a very powerful uh, mother trying to come out of her shadow and a, and a divorce in her childhood that she's not come to terms with. But I, I thought it'd be really interesting not to have this with Janeway, to have a very, very different setup. Because she always strikes me when you see her on screen, she's a very centered, very certain, very focused, very strong person. She looks like the kind of person who's been given unconditional love at the right age, yeah? <laughs> and that carries through. And she's in this terrible situation, and you know, it's frightening and she feels isolated. But there's this sort of core of strength, and to explore where that might have come from is uh, is very, very interesting, I think. So that's the kind of family setup I imagined. We did struggle going, oh, is there enough drama in this sort of setup? But the, the drama lends itself naturally, I think. Yeah, I, you know, there's the, the conflict between her and her sister, which is natural when you have siblings, especially at those ages. I, I liked her reaction to finding out she was going to have a little sister. And then the way you described their interactions with each other within the family unit, I thought felt very natural. So it is that kind of natural drama that comes out of a family instead of feeling like it's something manufactured for the story just to kind of enhance the character. And then the big blow, I suppose, because she's had this, uh, uh, not idyllic, but but very solid and strong and, and supportive environment. The big shock is is that her father dies. He's killed. Uh, and that's I, I. My observation has been that if if people have had um, quite uh, not straightforward, but um, you know, have had a pretty solid, if they've had a, a good run of things, then if a disaster strikes um, relatively late, so she's in her early twenties, isn't she? Mm-hmm. It, it's even more devastating because it's not like you've had small. I mean, you wouldn't wish a kind of disasters on a child, but uh, it, it can be more devastating because you've not had to de- deal with 
say, uh, the death of a grandparent or um, she's dealt with the death of a dog, which is a, you know, you know, that is a big shock for a child. But her father dying relatively young and in his prime is a massive blow to her and sort of throws her into a, a period of depression. So that, I think, is the big blow. And it comes at a point where she's um, she's almost knocked off course by it. So that, I think, was the moment of, of real drama for her. Which way would she go? Could she pick herself up from this? Or was it going to always knock her off course? And this being Janeway, of course, she she digs. She digs deep and she she finds herself again. Yeah, and that's something that connected with me as well, because my father died. He actually committed suicide when I was about 39 or I think I was about 39 when it happened. And it was hard because he was someone who I talked to regularly. He was really the only person, because I don't have a lot of family, he was really the only person that I could turn to and talk about problems. And I had talked to him the week before. Mm -hmm. And we talked for, you know, like an hour more. As usual, everything seemed fine. And then, you know, the next week I got a phone call around lunchtime from my aunt, his sister, telling me that they had found him. And and it took me years to get over that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, That's really hard. I'm sorry about that. That's very, very Mm. difficult. Um, my father died when I was very young. Uh, he, I was about 12. So, uh, and that's a, that's a different sort of blow, I think. But I think for many people, it's that first big shock in their life. I think because for all of us, perhaps it's our first sense, not just the loss of someone very dear, but the loss of a kind of anchor, the loss of, um, uh, it, I think it puts a, it, it removes a barrier between you and your own mortality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We never want to lose, you know, it's an inevitable part of life and, it, and, it, and it's always going to be painful. There are ways in which it can be more or less painful, I think. So, uh, so that was how I tried to play this one. Well, he played a very huge role in her life as readers will find out as they read this autobiography how did you go about fleshing out that aspect of her story and that relationship that she had with her father? Well, it, it, this was an interesting experience because, of course, there's already a, a book out there by Jerry Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we, we looked very closely at that and we thought, um, how, how closely should we feel bound by this? Because obviously she was a co-creator on the show. So, um, you know, it's a very yeah. strong case for it to say, you know, this is, this is intended to be the story. And I think we sort of looked at the book and it, it comes out part way through the show being transmitted. So I think eventually the show sort of drifts from what's established in that. Uh, and I think yeah. we kind of looked at it and thought, well, do you know, if we if we stick too closely with this, we're not going to have a book. You know, there's 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 nothing really to we, 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 we would be caught in a bind here. So let's do with Janeway what's been done with many, many other Trek characters. You know, how many times have we had sort of Kirk's origin story or even Picard's origin story now, uh, Spock's. So um, let, let's let's just take what we have on screen and craft a story around that. So this isn't Jerry Taylor's Janeway. This is, this is Una McCormack's Janeway. But I like to think that, it, it, that it's true to what we see presented on screen from what the writers give us, obviously from the performances particularly Kate Mulgrew's. So we tried to put that out of our mind. I think if something made it from the book on screen, then we went, that obviously is established. And there were little bits and pieces. I, th- I think the sort of direction from the, the editors and the studio was 
you know, if there's something you like, I think I've, I've taken some names or um, uh, maybe a couple of situations, work with that. But what I really wanted to do was centre, and I, I try and do this in many of my books, centre many of her, her female friends, the women who have impact on her life. So her mother, her father, obviously, because he's so significant in, he's her buddy and her mates, as well as her kind of first mentor. But give her mentors at, at Starfleet Academy, give her a circle of friends show who her sister marries and and the family life the sister has, investigate all those other things. And you kind of, once you stop imagining those networks and building them up, then you get a much stronger sense of the space that this individual person inhabits. So that was how we tried to juggle that, inspired by that, but not beholden to it. And then it's just a case of, it's making stuff up. <laughs> how, how would she react? And it's funny, you watch, I, I watched Voyager. I had a really quite intense, uh, I watched it all in about seven weeks, I think. It's kind of you know, propped up on the sofa going, <sighs> episode six today, you know. <laughs> it's very, it's, it is very watchable. And there's lots and lots of little bits and pieces. She has lots of throwaway lines about, you know, um, an oak tree that she swung on or uh, uh, a dish that her grandmother made. And you, these are sort of nuggets of gold because you, you, you have to take these, um, these little jewels and sort of um, connect them up with a chain and make sure that the whole, the whole piece of jewellery to kind of run with that metaphor kind of connects up and you've got something coherent from it. So there were lots of little tidbits that we could, and, and obviously we hope that a fan will kind of go, oh, I remember that from X, I remember that from Y and, uh, and be pleased that they've recognised it and that we've, we've paid attention to it. So yeah, just spending time with her and uh, listening to the voice and um, picturing what that life would be like. And also, you heard it here, everyone. Writers make stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it's amazing. Camille, <laughs> just literally, you're sitting there going, I've got to do 1,500 words today. I'd better make something up. <laughs> that really is what it comes down to. Yeah. But those little nuggets you talk about, I think they stand out to you more when you do a very rapid rewatch like that as well, because you're not at least for me, uh, I've watched Enterprise this way twice. We're like very fast going through and I've done DS9 this way. Uh, I did Voyager this way recently, but not as rapidly as the others. And I know how those things pop out to you because you're a little bit less focused on the story itself because you already know the story very well. And so those lines pop out. Speaking of fathers though, so Janeway has this wonderful relationship with her father. He's he's often gone because of the nature of Starfleet and he's a captain and he's gone for a long time. But when they're together, they have this very strong bond. Uh, at one point in the autobiography, we see that moment where she meets Tom Paris for the first time. And he's 12 years old because she served under his father. And it's mentioned that it seems like Tom is trying to get his dad's attention. So there's this contrast between Janeway, who had this father who was very loving and devoted to her and had this strong connection, and Tom, who was always kind of fighting to get that acknowledgement from his father. And that contrast just stood out to me there. Is there anything else that you can add about how fathers play those roles in people's lives and how uh, we become who we are because of that? it's a very Trek story to sort of, um, I, I, and I think um, it's a very, it's a very uh, American story 
to kind mm. of tell the story of, uh, you know, a, a disappointment and miscommunication between father and son. And it's it's there on screen between Tom and Owen. Mm-hmm. It's it's easier, perhaps, within within that sort of um, milieu for a father and daughter uh, to uh, to relate. Um, you know, in the same way that it's it's tricky for mothers and daughters because you you're sort mm-hmm. of you, you, it, it, it's like you're trying to break free of uh, identifying with that one, whereas the the other yeah. one, there's sufficient difference that you can um, uh, you can be more compatible. I have a son and a daughter, so I, I've seen firsthand how that dynamic works. Yeah. Yes, yes, it does. Mm. It really, really does. Um, so, uh, but I, but I also thought that the key difference is that that Janeway really wants to be in Starfleet. Yeah, Catherine wants to be in Starfleet, and and basically, I don't think Tom does <laughs> um and and you see this play out i mean who's who's the best father in star trek it's it's obviously ben cisco and you see this dynamic play out where jake eventually comes up to him and says you know i don't want to be in starfleet and ben goes oh cool right okay oh i thought you did well i'm glad you tell me what do you want to do then and it's like oh ben could you let's go build a ship and write a book and go and do brilliant make some gumbo <laughs> exactly that exactly let's find out what you want to yeah. do and uh, you, you sort of imagine if only Tom had been able to have this conversation with Owen, but for whatever reason, he can't. And at the same time, you've got a, a very busy man with a very busy job. And he's sort of going, you know, Tom's sort of going, hello, I'm here. And um, how do I get your attention? Well, I get it by joining Starfleet. But of course, I'm going to wash out of that because I've got problems with authority because I've got unresolved father issues. <laughs> so, so the way I, I end up getting your attention is by uh, by getting thrown into jail. So I really wanted to, it, it was really striking watching back the show to see Tom sort of turn from this um, sullen, quite beaten down man into somebody who, who, who freed of that, of, of the sort of mess of that relationship that neither of them can quite see a way out of. Uh, sort of freeze himself and you see it in Owen's face when they finally see each other again mm-hmm. he's just relieved he's alive and uh, I, I think it's as much the way I wanted to play this story was it, it's as much Owen growing up as a as a father as it is Tom growing up as a son and I, I, can we do spoilers for the book? Let's just assume that Yeah, let's do, uh, let's just give everyone a spoiler alert. I mean we already spoiled it for everyone that Janeway's dad dies. But uh, beyond that, make sure read the book if you don't want to have any spoilers. Yeah, we'll, so, we'll, uh, be, we'll be spoilerific from here, I think. Okay. So uh, in that last chapter where we sort of wrap up and see where everyone's gone, it, it absolutely seemed true to me that it would be Balana that would have the Starfleet career and Tom would go and be a house husband. <laughs> it just basically seemed to be what he wanted to do, kind of knock mm-hmm. around, build cars, do a bit of cooking. You know, I'd, I'd give him a kind of uh, secondary career as a as a writer of holodramas. So, uh, you know, he's the, the old mind is ticking over. But he struck me as someone who, you know, he's got a lot of personal courage. He doesn't mind taking risks. Uh, he's learned all this at Starfleet, I think. But basically, he's he's happy just providing the setup in which Balana can fly. And I think that's very true to Voyager as well, which, um, you know, so much uh, when Voyager was was being made, was about casting a woman as the captain, you know? Mm-hmm. Is this even a thing? And coming down on set every day to see how, how she's doing in the performance. So to give it a chance to, to you know, explicitly 
reverse those roles within a quite nuclear family setup, I thought was playful and fun. So I hope people enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Good. Let's uh, roll back just a little bit back to the beginning, because another thing I wanted to ask you about is there are these moments in the autobiography where Janeway is talking about her relationship within the family and the stories that she's told. Uh, sometimes they're literal stories, like the the Cherokee story of the water spider. There's Alice in Wonderland. Uh, and then there are just other interactions that she has with family members. And I was wondering about your thought process about how you come up with the stories that would be influential to a young girl and how much of that is based on your own experiences as, as a child, your relationship with your mother, and how much of it stems from your role now as a mother to your daughter? Oh, that's interesting. Um, uh, I think that, uh, so So my daughter and I hilariously have got this thing, uh, just this sort of thing we were talking about, which is that she absolutely will not read books. Yeah, okay. Books, absolutely not. They are completely identified with the mother units. Therefore, they must be rejected in all ways, except the vast amount of books that she reads with her dad. <laughs> okay. And kind of sneakily reads when I'm not looking. So books, <laughs> no, they are there. The mother reads books. The mother produces books. Books must be denied, except for all the books I'm reading, you know. Um, so so that quite comically is, is sort of going on. But these, so, and there are lots of books around. I mean, you can't sort of see it. There's a lot of books around this flat. Uh, so it's not, it's not like there's uh, a shortage of material. I think whenever I'm writing a novel, I always have a, a story at the back of my mind, which is kind of the touchstone story. So if I get stuck while, when I'm writing, I think I try to think, what basically is this this book about? For this one, it was it was Wizard of Oz. It's as simple as that. It's there's no place like home. You know, she's Dorothy Gale. The twister has taken her off. But what was nice about that is that it also located Janeway as somebody from the Midwest. And that gave me a kind of sense of the place that she was from, the physical geographical place that she was from, and tried to write her as a Midwesterner. But not a Midwesterner now. We're talking about somebody in the far future. So there's a, there's a section where I kind of talk about her childhood reading. And I thought quite hard about this because, um, you know, the, there's a kind of established canon that maybe you're given as kids. There's British kids. My, mine would be slightly different. So I talked to American friends and I said, well, you know, what, what books did you always get given? And how would you wish that that was, how would, how would we think that that might be different? So, for example, I don't have the Little House books on, Little House on the Prairie, because they're really, really, really problematic about, American Indians, about Native Americans. They're really mm. awful. And I would really hesitate about giving those to a child. I, I mean, I, don't, I, would, I would read them, but I would always contextualize them. But I, certainly I read them completely without context, um, which mm -hmm. is really worrying now. Um, so I tried to think what would a juster and more representative canon look like? So I, instead of seeing the usual suspects, I kind of try to put on some literature that's contemporary from now that would be more representative and also imagine books that maybe are written a hundred years from now or 150 years from now. So there's a little sort of canon that I give her, which, which is perhaps a bit different from usual. Some people have liked this and some people have not thought it's too, 
too woke or too right on whatever but I think these stories do form us that you know they 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 feed into our imagination they give us stock characters and ways of relating to the world and the stories that she likes are naturally very outward focused they're perhaps about adventure and exploration and the new and excitement and her sister likes like the other things and at the same time her mother is writing children's stories so you know right right (laughs) so um so maybe she leans a bit more to it's very funny my little girl's been learning about Amelia Earhart this week so we um we still have a Voyager episode on yeah yeah last week uh, last week at school she was doing Amelia Earhart so we put the Voyager episode on for all right you've got to have the real story (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is what really happened. <laughs> this is what really happened, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so all of this, I, I, it's just really interesting to think of the stories that we feed kids, um, how we fill their imaginations, what are the things that we stock their minds with at a very early age. So I did a little bit of thinking about that. You know, I have it in my notes. Uh, there's a line in the book that says, people often ask me what it was like having a writer of children's books as a mother. And I put a note in about you. I was thinking that I'm V, your daughter. People often ask me what it was like having a writer of Star Trek and Doctor Who books as a mother. <laughs> well, I can tell you what that's like. She's she's absolutely disappointed in me that I've never written a Star Wars book. So, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Star Wars, it's all Star. She's naturally honed in on the uh, the one property in which I have no no social capital at all. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because when I was her age, I was all in on Star Wars as well. You know, I mean, Star Wars came out, I was about five when it was, when it was first released. And so I was all Star, I mean, I I got into Star Trek around the same age, but Star Wars was my, was my thing until university uh, or late high school. I was about the same age. I was about, I was uh, six. Um, I just turned Mm -hmm. six when Star Wars came out in the UK. Um, 1978, January 1978, and um, and, and I absolutely loved it. But um, there came a point as a as a girl viewer where you you kind of bounced off, uh, and um, that's not. It's actually really joyful. She sort of um, plunged into this canon, and there's no question that there's space for her in this narrative now. You know, uh, we came in. I mean, Leia obviously is her is her big obsession because Leia is awesome, um, but um, people like Ahsoka Tano. Um, she's just absolutely, uh, absolutely hooked onto. There's no question that there's the space for a little girl in this narrative now. It's perfect. So, so I'm just a big disappointment because I've never written a layout. <laughs> <laughs> so she must be very excited about the new series that's going to be coming up. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. she's we've 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 watched the whole of the Mandalorian, which I kind of oh, is that a bit? But no, she thought it was cool. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Well, let's see. I wanted to ask you also about, I wanted to ask you about mentors because we talked about, we've already talked about her parents and in the book, her grandparents also play an important role, which my grandparents did for me in my life. But later on, as Janeway goes to the academy and then she moves on, she comes under the wing of Owen Paris, which we've talked about, and another character called Flora Christopher, and then others along the way. And I just wanted to get your thoughts a little bit on mentors and how the people we encounter in our life influence who we are along the way and play roles that maybe even our parents can't play. Oh, I I, I think uh, particularly play roles that our parents uh, can't play. And even within situations where parenting has been 
has been excellent or extremely competent, which it has in, in this case, mentorship is incredibly important. So grandparents, uh, uh, grandparents are, are, are different again. I think it, it's that old saw about a village to raise a child. You need these perspectives, you know, and, and a nuclear family is, is too enclosed. It's too hermetically sealed. And, and even introducing grandparents who are the, the people that you observe your parents being children. <laughs> Again, if you see, oh, they were, they were children. Right. To, you know, they are subject to authority. Yeah. Um, uh, they're irritated in the way that I feel irritated with them, you know. So you, you observe that and it gives, it gives your, it, it makes your parents loom uh, less, I think. And also you get spoiled and all these sorts of things. I didn't have grandparents. Uh, they pretty much all died before I was born. But mentors are, are, are something very, very different because they are outside of that circle. They're not invested in it. They're invested in perhaps your intellectual growth or uh, your, your emotional growth, your growth to maturity, your growth towards um, full adult personhood. And they're not invested in, in, in the family. They might be family friends. So, you know, they might go, well, you know, I knew your mother at college and let me tell you X, Y. <laughs> right. <laughs> so again, they're, they're a kind of, you know, uh, or, well, have you thought about this from your father's perspective? Because I know that X matters a great deal to him. Mm-hmm. Or they just might not be invested at all. And they might be a kind of, you know, you might you might be working for someone and go, Wow, that's how you deal with uh, uh, an idiot boss, or uh-huh, right. That's how you build consensus in this room, or um, oh crumbs! I really respect them, and they've given me something. They give me a task to do that I'm a bit nervous about. Who do I go to for advice? Who do I um, who do I get guidance from in a professional context? Uh, and I think these these figures are extremely important. It's a big theme of the Tilly book as well, where I think she's really, really struggling to find good yeah. mentorship. Yeah, because um, her mother is so um, impressive a figure uh, mm-hmm. and, and so not suited to to the task of mothering her own child um, or yeah. this specific child, which happens. There's no- That's an excellent book, by the way. So if, if any Discovery fans haven't read it and you want a good it's kind of backstory to Tilly... Yeah, That's, it's it's a young adult novel. Really yeah, enhanced the show a lot, especially at the time it came out. Thank you, thank you very much. I'm very proud of that book. Actually, it did it did everything mm. I wanted to be doing to kind of subvert a Star Trek novel. <laughs> so I was very I was very pleased with it. Um, so um, and and some of those things again, I, I think Janeway um, people want her to succeed. They see they see a sort of strength and integrity. Uh, and she's she and she's also she's quite she's quite good at, at um, because she does have you know admirals coming around and and giving mm-hmm. her piggybacks and things. I think she's she's not afraid to reach out to these people, um, which is a you know I think one of her captains says, oh, it's all right for you, you know, in your your network. And there's some truth in that, um, but I don't think she misuses that. She doesn't use it for advantage. She doesn't use it to cover her failings. She uses it right. to um, assist her growth. Uh, and I suspect would we'll be generous with it. The kind of thing, oh, well, I know Admiral X. Um, let me put you in touch. He, he's got uh, really good advice to give on this. I imagine Janeway doing that kind of thing all the time. Her network would be your network. That's the uh, slogan of Space LinkedIn, I think, right? Is it? <laughs> oh, My network could be your network. So. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to get myself sued for this. But in a kind of non-commercialized, non-horrible way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, were there any mentors in your life that you drew upon when you're thinking about 
how Janeway's career went when you wrote this? I was almost comically bereft of mentors, which I suspect is one, one oh, reason okay. I write about them a lot. So uh, <laughs> I think it's a lot of which I wish I'd been surrounded. And, and also I was probably uh, comically uh, unaware of people offering me mentorship, which is probably my other, my other error in life. So, so no, I've, I've made life very difficult for myself over the years. Uh, that sort of made it matter to me more, I think. So uh, that, that's why I write about it. And that's why I, I, I do it as well. Um, it matters. Yeah. That sounds like the great basis for a TV comedy. I would like to watch that show where you're just bereft of the fact that people around you are trying to mentor you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's some <laughs> advice. And you're going, no, and I deny that reality with wisdom and uh, <laughs> good guidance. So, uh, so yes, I, I'm, I'm sure there were many gentle nudges given over the year and I, 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 I felt it. it seems to have worked out broadly okay. <laughs> Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Another thing that I had to ask you about, because your love for Deep Space Nine and Cardassia is very well known. And there's so much talk in this book about the Cardassians and about Bajor and about the Federation Cardassian War and what led up to that. And it seemed natural to me that you would include this. And I think most fans don't connect Janeway with those events, even though those two series were running concurrently because Voyager was in the Delta Quadrant. And I was curious how much of the inclusion of this storyline of, of history during the 24th century stems from your love of Deep Space Nine and Cardassia, or is it just that that conflict, the Federation Cardassia conflict, was like the defining theme in the lives of up and coming officers during that time. I think it is in the show. I think they do they do draw connections. So the the the, the encounter with the with the Cardassian soldier, I think, is is from the show, and it it seemed to be something that um that would be you know she's she's had this Starfleet career before Voyager. And um, it's the defining conflict of that period. So this would be where she's seeing action along the Cardassian border, particularly, obviously, with the Maquis. And the Maquis arise from the from the Cardassian kind of mm-hmm. border skirmish. So all, all of that's there. Uh, it just needed the dots connecting, really. And then it absolutely struck me that, you know, the whole of Deep Space Nine has got this major conflict that all of her contemporaries would be undergoing. She's simply not there for uh, you know, the Dominion War would be the kind of decisive moment for many people, you know, the, the big war of their career. And they're not there for it. I'm reminded of, um, I think I was thinking of a, of a story of, um, is it Shackleton's mission to the uh, voyage to the Antarctic? And they get washed up on whichever island it is. And, you know, then they have to walk 100 miles in slippers across ice mountains or something. And when they're kind of rescued, they they learn that World War One has broken out and has been underway for some time. And it, it, this struck me as the same sort of thing that you know, if you if you had missed this war, you're content. You know, first of all, you know, many of your friends would be dead um, because they'd be you know they'd be captains of ships, um, your contemporaries. And and secondly, you would not have shared this this uniquely bonding experience. So I think it would be very odd for. Um, for Janeway to come back. And as for the McKee, it's a case of, well, that's just gone. You know, everything we were doing, they're all dead. That conflict just doesn't exist anymore. Everything we were invested in, that slate has been wiped clean. 
And that strikes me as a as a really weird thing to have to come back to, a, a reset to have to do. This world just doesn't exist anymore. So I wanted, I, I could see drama in that and emotional impact. So that's, and, and also I can't help myself, obviously, with the Cardassians. So <laughs> had to get in the, right. but, but I'd like to think that I was kind of, you know, textually yeah. <laughs> guided by this in some way. Well, it makes perfect sense, of course, in universe that this would be influencing and affecting everyone at the time. It struck me knowing your love for and knowledge of the conflict itself and the Cardassians that you were the ideal person to write this into the story because of your like your your depth of knowledge and passion for that uh, time period, but particularly uh, the Cardassians themselves. So. It uh, worked quite well for me, and and it it kind of helped create uh, more cohesion between Voyager and what was happening overall in that time period. Good, good, and and obviously there's a TNG touches on uh, mm-hmm. the troubles with Cardassians as well. Obviously, we see them there for the first time. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I did. I didn't manage to fit Garrick in. I think that would have been a stretch. <laughs> they can meet another time. <laughs> You, you should have thanked Tiny Garrick in your acknowledgments at the end of the book. <laughs> my, my constant companion. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to thank Tiny Garrick for appearing in many places on my desk as I wrote this novel. He does pretty <laughs> much sit there. For, for listeners who don't know, I, I, have, a, I have a little uh, Garrick, plastic Garrick figure who, uh, well, in the, in the before times, used to travel everywhere with me. And he's a, a, a regular um, feature on my Twitter feed. He, he pops up in all sorts of... That's right. I took him to CERN, so he's visited the Large Hadron Collider. He's been all there. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's going to pop up. So, uh, yeah, he goes everywhere. <laughs> so, Cardassian spies have been at CERN. All right. CERN, yeah, exactly that. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trust him near my, um, my uh, expensive equipment. <laughs> That's right. You know, you mentioned there how shocking it would be coming back and finding out that the Maquis and everything that was going on there beforehand is now gone and that this conflict happened be- because the, that situation with the Maquis is ultimately what got Voyager thrown to the Delta Quadrant in the first place because that's why they were there in the Badlands. And and after everything that you went through to get back and you come back and then you find out that it, it's, it doesn't exist anymore – would would probably make you feel a little bit like what was it all for, I think. I think in Janeway's mind, she she flicks a switch quite early on, which I think is a, this is this is very Janeway, is that she sees them as um, uh, almost as ambassadors. Yeah, that they are fulfilling their mission. They're 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 meeting new species. They're exploring space. Uh, they are the first contact. You know, the, we are the we are the Federation. We are Starfleet. Mm-hmm. And we are the first you will ever encounter. And one day, maybe a wormhole will open, the same as it does with the Gamma Quadrant. And you will have met Starfleet and you will not think badly of us, you know. So that is always in her mind, I think. And, it, and it's a very, it's typical Janeway to kind of kind of find a positive spin to a, to a very, very hard situation. So in that sense, I think she would feel her mission hadn't been a waste, that it had been entirely congruent with what Starfleet and the Federation are all about. Um, I think they talk about that, don't they, when they when they leave Neelix behind, that he's their um yeah, he's a sort right. of ambassador for them. So I, I was yeah. kind of guided by that, you know, that that he was their first friend and they hope they've left many friends behind. 
I hope so anyway. It's an excellent point, and it makes you think what might have happened had a Starfleet vessel been thrown into the Gamma Quadrant years before the Dominion conflict and and worlds in the Delta Quadrant had an opportunity to learn about Starfleet prior to this. I don't know if it would have made much of a difference because the changelings just don't like solids, so maybe that yeah. would have still played out the same. But at the same time, maybe there would have been allies in the Delta Quadrant, maybe there would have been some influence that might have changed the nature of the, the changelings have been persecuted haven't they they've that, that that's already been set up i think before the wormhole opens mm-hmm. and and also and to give to give the founders their due uh garrick tain and the tal shiar try to wipe them out <laughs> so, so, yeah it's true <laughs> they, they've got quite they've got quite well grounded fears of, of alpha quadrant powers like yeah, and encounters with one Federation ship probably wouldn't undo that ill will that was established. No, no, no. Yeah. So <laughs> they really messed that up. But um, but I really liked this idea, and it's very Starfleet as well, isn't it? It's like, we are here now, Federation has arrived, you know, be yeah. be aware of us and this kind of thing. And we have that other ship out there. They, they, these are my favorite episodes, actually, about the Equinox. Oh, yeah, right. Really, really good two-parter. So um, what happens when it breaks down? So, uh, yeah. One more question I had about Janeway and just kind of how she thinks about things is you mentioned near the end, the episode Workforce, and Janeway talks about her time at the Quarren Industrial Complex. And that's an episode I've always found interesting because it raises questions about Janeway's desires. She's so duty-driven to get everybody home. But in those softer moments when we see her, we know that you know, she is a more complex character. And that episode always made me think about her desires versus her sense of duty to the choice that she made that stranded the crew in the Delta Quadrant. What are your thoughts on her statement when she says, there's the final line, and she says that I was happy there? It's really sad, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it speaks of her, of her loss of the marriage to Mark, that that was a she's just on the cusp of a sort of proving that you can have it all. And I think we, uh, although this seems like an odd theme, well, it's not an odd theme now, actually. This was very, very, very important in the 90s. So when when Voyager is being made, is it possible to combine career and marriage for for women? Mm -hmm. Right. So so this this was, and I think it runs through Voyager, uh, in many ways, because because even though it's a show set in the future, it's written as a show grounded in in specific a specific context right. and specific concerns, yeah. um, and you always have to bear that in mind. So the presence of this woman ca- woman captain, I think, always in the background, we're having we're having these these questions being asked, and she is offered this sort of um, she's offered a, a home life, isn't she? She's offered a partner. Uh, and a, and a way of being, and then uh, uh, of course, as um, uh, you know, she comes back to full awareness. She's she's always ever going to go back to to Voyager. They're offered they're offered these moments several times, aren't they? They um, so I think they're invited to to stay on a isn't that in the in the Amelia Earhart episode as well? There there's a chance for them to stay. You know, you you can just stop now and and remain with this human colony. So there are various moments where they're given a chance to to stop and settle and just be in the world 
but they no, they they turn it down. They want to go home. Obviously, they wouldn't have a show for one thing. Um, but um, but it does speak to something. But that's a really it's a really sad line, isn't it? And I think she she mm-hmm. is she does. And we, I play this in the book. I hope that's a big loss to her that that marriage with 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 Mark. She's found a way. She's found a partner who says, "Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll let's set this up so that you can be Catherine Janeway, but you you can be Catherine Janeway with me." Uh, and that's huge for her. And it's a real, a real loss. Uh, and then she spends the seven years kind of going, well, I don't, because of this setup, I don't um, enter into a relationship with someone because it will be, I, I just have to be the captain. That's, that's, yeah. the, that's what the job is in this situation. Um, and I can't, I can't afford to be distracted or I can't afford to, I can't afford to, break the stasis in some way, complicate things even further in some way. And I think that's really tough. That would be a big ask of anyone. And I think they they play it through a female character so that it's got extra kind of nuance. Um, but I think it's quite well done. And I hope at the end of, of this book, she does feel like she's got everything because she deserves it, <laughs> <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, losing that with Mark, as you say, would be very difficult because she had the earlier relationship, which you describe in the book, where the person basically wanted her to put her career on hold, which is, you know, the the kind of the classic setup. And and she passed on that. And then she found someone who was going to, wanted to work with her so that she could be all that she wanted to be. And then she loses that, which is tough. And you talk about the opportunities that they have to stay behind from time to time. And what I find interesting in the show is that Chakotay's more willing to take that opportunity. I think he's a bit more practical, like it's going to be very hard for us to get back. So maybe we should take an opportunity and just start a new life here. And she's determined, no, we're going to get everyone home. And so she's very strong in that sense. But you you can feel at times the pressure that she's under to make that happen and in workforce, it takes that moment where she doesn't remember who she is, and then that comes out from her. And then you can kind of feel what's maybe underneath all the time. I think she played Kate Mulgrew plays it beautifully in those episodes as well, because um, uh, the Janeway that we see there is is quite timid and risk averse. There's something not Janeway about her. Uh, and then when full memory is sort of restored and, and Catherine is back. That's it, right? Straight out. There's no question about what needs mm-hmm. to be done. I'm, I'm myself again. So it's very, very nicely performed as well. There's something not quite Janeway about her, yeah, without that mission and that certainty. Well, the uh, actually, I have two more points I wanted to ask you about. One of them is not so much related to the story. So the one that is, is near the end of the book, we we connect back to the beginning where we're talking about children again. Janeway talks about the fact that they ended up having quite a few children on the ship. And as fans, I think many of us have often felt and have said that perhaps Voyager as a show missed an opportunity by not being more of a generational ship. They actually were able to get back because the show could have gone in a different way and shown what it's like to have a long journey. But when you think about it, there were quite a number of children on the ship, either those born there like Naomi or those they picked up like Echeb and the Borg children. And also Janeway is very much a mother figure to Seven. 
And I guess my thought here and seeing how they connect is as you're writing this and you're thinking about Janeway and you've written her life from childhood and her experiences to where she's now in the position that her parents, she doesn't have children of her own biologically, but she's in that position that her parents were in at the beginning of the book. So tying those all together, uh, what are your thoughts on that, first of all? And why do you think that it was important to Janeway to nurture people as we did see her do throughout the show? The reasons why they don't really do it in the show, of course, obvious is that, you know, it's a, it's a, show that yeah, they have seven series yeah, yeah. and it's of going course, to be syndicated. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, although though Deep Space Nine manages this, you know, manages to do it, but then it's sort of the the hidden, you know, Voyager's the flagship, isn't it? I, I think, um, or it's the very, the it's time, the one yeah, that, it was. Yeah, it's yeah. the one that people are watching, isn't it? Whereas I think it's yeah. Deep Space Nine now that people are, are really responding to. Um, yeah. Why would she, why would she mentor? I think because, because she's had that positive experience of her own. And I think she is, she's driven by duty. She's driven not just by duty in a kind of dry way, but it, but in a sense of um, uh, uh, duty is something to motivate and enlarge her life. Uh, she feels firstly part of her own family. She feels very much part of the family of Starfleet. Uh, she's been given good examples of how she can um, benefits of, 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 of how life can be benefited by good guidance or good involvement. I think Seven is a mixed success. I think Balana probably is her greater triumph. Yeah, yeah. Um, although it's, you know, um, I think Seven has to find her, her own way uh, in many ways. And it's, it's an interesting relationship. It's, it's, it, it's sort of partly daughterly uh, and, and, and partly superior officer and but she they play it in several different ways and partly mentor um and, and partly um cat trauma therapist yeah so it, they they have to play it in in many many different ways of 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 of, of um person who guides um so um whereas with balana i think it's more straightforwardly you, you've seen uh, partly her boss and um uh partly a, a, a sort of positive older female um mm-hmm. role model so i i it just seemed to me something that um janeway would do naturally she would take care um of the people around her um partly because that leads to a functioning ship yeah <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so there's a there's point. a kind of pragmatic <laughs> goal to it but it you know there there are ways to motivate and there are ways to you know you can motivate through fear and this is you know we see equinox there um and um, um, one of the one of the stories I found really touching that I really wanted to pick up was was, was on the crew members that that came from Equinox, particularly the, the quite junior ones, and that seemed to me something that that she would follow through, that she would keep an eye on them and make sure they were okay because to some extent, perhaps she could see how she might have made those decisions and it. It, it wouldn't have been Harry Kim's fault, yeah. Uh, you know, he would have. You know, what would Harry have done um, with his with his superiors giving him different orders? And I think the McKee as well. I, I think we have that in the end of that. Is, isn't this the thing that she she threatens to go postal over at the end of the book? That you know, there's a couple of mm-hmm. admirals going. Well, they should all go to prison. And she's like, you make a move on them, matey. I'm going to be all over the the networks. <laughs> Bad mouthing you. They've they've served and served well. Um, so I think she she would protect her own and um, and and reward um, good service. So I think she's she's bringing out the best in people. 
that's good leadership. Well, the other thing I wanted to ask you about that's not really related to the story so much, it's just something that stood out to me in light of recent Star Trek, is you mentioned Mars a lot in this book. And Mars has always been around in Star Trek as U- Utopia Planitia and where they build ships and all from the beginning. But we have a number of characters here who either live on Mars or grew up there, or they're serving there. And I was just curious if there's any connection to the fact that Mars sort of came to the forefront in Star Trek Picard and kind of highlighting the role of the Red Planet in Starfleet life during the 24th century? I think this is a straightforward uh, So It's really interesting. I didn't realize I'd done it so much. I, I'd literally just finished writing the Picard book when I started this one. So okay. it's, prob- it's probably as straightforward as that. Um, that it was that was looming quite large in my imagination. I've I've written about Mars uh, in other contexts as well. Uh, so I've written a Doctor Who uh, story about Mars, and I've written a kind of retelling of the Spartacus story on a, a kind of science fictional Mars. Um, that's an original novella. Um, so I, I think it's as simple as that. That I, I I literally sent off the draft for the Picard book, and then went, oh, what now? <laughs> oh, Janeway. It was quite. A, it was quite a. They're very different, very different experience. You know, one's very melancholy, and uh, both reflect both books of two people reflecting back on their life, but very, very different in tone. I think so. I think it could be as simple as that. That I had Mars had I been see. looming quite, quite high in my imagination. <laughs> I see. Well, it's a good connection for me this week, actually, because one piece I've been working on for my magazine is about NASA's Artemis program, which will hopefully ultimately put men and women on Mars. And so it's a great progression that, you know, we're we're getting close to taking maybe a first step there and it will grow into Starfleet. Well, I have a bonus question for you, Una. I don't know if you can answer this one, but given that you're a Niner and given that you've written the autobiography of Catherine Janeway, can we expect to see the autobiography of Benjamin Sisko coming from you anytime in the future? I, I honestly don't know. I don't, I, it all depends. <laughs> Publishing is a tough old game. Um, certainly, it seems a very natural project to come next uh, that Deep Space Nine really should get its moment in the sun. I'd love to do Kira, actually. That, that I think oh, would yeah. be... Yeah, yeah, it'll be, yeah, yeah, will be right up my street. So who knows? Who knows? I, I could see it would be a natural book to do next. Um, uh, uh, hopefully, this one has done well uh, and people have liked it. We've obviously not been able to, uh, you know, we were, were there's going to be loads of promo around it, and you know, it's the anniversary year. We're going to do conventions and stuff. I'll obviously, not be able to do any of that. But I, yeah, I hope people have read it anyway. I think there's going to be uh, if conventions are running next year. I know the. Um, the big destination Star Trek convention is planning to run next November, and they're going to treat it like the Voyager anniversary year. It's like, okay, we kind of had that year off, so we'll we'll celebrate twenty six years instead. So, um, but fingers crossed, yes, this book would be would be really interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, um, but we'll see. So the the conventions are going to be doing what we're doing here in Tokyo, which is we're calling if if we have the Olympics next year, we're still calling it Tokyo twenty twenty. Oh, that's fantastic! That's fantastic, actually. Yeah. Do you think you they'll can have still to see? I'm a bit skeptical if it will actually happen. If it does, I think it'll be scaled down. But uh, all around the city now, we all over, you see posters, all the trains. We still have Tokyo 2020 everywhere, uh, which it makes sense from a marketing perspective. So you don't have to reprint everything. And, you know, it's a branding exercise. But, well, I hope you do get to write those because I think, again, you would be the perfect person to write an autobiography of Cisco and Kira and Garrick, 
Uh, well, that's already been done, of course. That's uh, yeah. We have Andy Robinson's book, so uh, so oh, that's right, a, right, right, right. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's right. But I'd I'd love to write my own version of events. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking of because um, you you've written so much about Garrick over the years, and also you have a little advisor right there on your desk. I mean, who knows? Who knows Garrick better than Tiny Garrick himself? <laughs> I'm sure he's never willingly told me the truth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, you know, usually there's a lot of convention stuff coming up uh, that we can talk about here at the end and not so much of that, but I know you're always busy with things. So tell people what you have on the horizon and also where they can find you if they want to follow what you have going on. Uh, well, I would definitely follow me on um, Twitter, which is at Una McCormack. And if people aren't sick of the sound of my voice, they can have a look at my website. And um, I've done lots of podcasts. Um, I think we've all been doing that during um, during the past year. Just done one on Captain Marvel, uh, which people might enjoy, which I absolutely adore. So it's it's half an hour of me just being frenetically excited about a fantastic <laughs> film. Um, it's had a lot of fun with that. Um I have a Doctor Who novel that's uh, literally just come out sort of in the last week or so, which is um, called All Flesh is Grass. And it's part of a big project, uh, Time Lord Victorious project, which is all sorts of multimedia stuff going on. I think during this year of lockdown and the show not being on air, there've been kind of audio dramas and comic strips and novels and all all sorts of business going on. Uh, And I've got a novel out in that, um, which has, um, it's got three doctors in it. It's got David Tennant's Doctor and Christopher Eccleston's and Paul McGann's. So it's quite a big sort of event. So people might enjoy that. Um, I have got projects underway, but I, they've not been announced. So I can't. <laughs> so, uh, but there, there's, there'll be some exciting stuff, I hope, in the new year, some really good, good fun stuff to tell people. So, um, so yeah, I, I just can't tell you now. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's good to hear that there's more stuff coming up. Well, Una, thank you for getting together with me early in the morning there for you evening here for me to talk about the autobiography of Catherine Janeway. And I hope that you have great holidays over there uh, under the circumstances and uh, look forward to having you here on Literary Treks again. Always a pleasure. Always wonderful questions. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, Matthew, I'm really sad that you weren't with Una and me for that discussion because I know you would have loved it, but Una sends you her best, and I uh, hope you enjoy listening back to what she had to say about family and mentors and childhood, and uh, it was it was a great, for me as a parent, a great kind of family discussion. Yeah, I'm really excited. You know, I, it is fun to be able to listen to the show as a fan, you know, and, and be able to get to hear uh, what, um, you know, the authors have to say. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to it. And, and you know, Una is always fantastic. Uh, and so I have no doubt it's going to be a fantastic show. But um yeah, we're really uh, excited, uh, as you know, we we're kind of mentioning in the news for for what we've got coming up, Chris. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I know both you and I have talked about behind the scenes is, you know, we wanted to thank um, our associate producers for being so kind and generous to us uh, through Patreon, because it's really meant a lot to us, the people that have stuck with us all over the years and help keep the network uh, coming to you uh, each and every week. And uh, we uh, really want to say uh, a huge thank you to Greg Rosier and 
and uh, Casey Petit. Uh, just thank you so much, guys. We do truly appreciate uh, the fact that uh, you have been sticking with us. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we head into 2021, uh, we would like to ask you, uh, just as they have, uh, to take a look at uh, patreon.com slash trekfm and, and help support the network because chris you know uh this is uh a very very expensive thing to put on trek fm and we could definitely especially as we move into 2021 we could definitely use as much help as possible yeah absolutely and i have some new ideas for our perks of course getting the roundtables going again as well as some interactive elements with trivia things like that some uh, things i've encountered recently that look like a lot of fun and Try to see 2021, you know, it. the year is going to be a bridge for everyone, a sort of transition from this chaotic year of coronavirus that we've had in 2020 into what we call the new normal. But I would like to transition some things there too, get a little bit of interaction going and try some new things on the Star Trek front. And not just Star Trek, but beyond, of course, because we have the 602 Club there with you, Matthew. Absolutely. And uh, we've got some things cooking uh, behind the scenes. We actually uh, do. It's in the works, folks, but there's going to be a new short run series show that's going to be coming out over on under the 602 Club banner, which we're really excited uh, to be able to announce soon to you guys. So uh, get on the edge of your seats, folks, because it's going to be a fun ride. Well, Matthew, when you're not working on that upcoming short run show and you're not trying to figure out uh, just what Seven's Reckoning might be, where can people find you? <laughs> you can find me uh, pretty much uh, any social media platform that I'm on. I'm Matt Rushing 2 so just check me out there. Uh, of course, here on the network doing The 602 Club, which you can also follow on Twitter, at The 602 Club. And uh, we're talking about all things geeky. Uh, and, and as we mentioned, we're going to be growing that side of the network as well, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, please, uh, you know, check us out. We have a great time over there. Uh, I can't believe, Chris, I think that this year the 602 club turned five or six i don't i don't I know think i think it's older than that maybe probably I don't, yeah, yeah it could be uh this that's how long it's been and i can't remember but um so really excited to be doing that of course you can also find me over on the nerd party network doing aggressive negotiations with john mills which is a star wars podcast as well as owl post with drea kaufman which is a harry potter podcast where we talk about uh the harry potter series one chapter at a time but uh chris uh, and when uh, people are uh, looking to catch up with you online and see what you've got going on, where can they find you? Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring up how old the 602 Club is, because speaking of longevity, this past week, December 14th, I believe it was, actually marked 10 years for me podcasting and 10 years since the first podcast episode aired on Trek FM. So we're fully into a decade now. That's hard to believe. And I... Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's really crazy and hard to believe. And, you know, the last few years have kept me off mic most of the time, but things are starting to change. I will still be doing the magazine in 2021, but under a different arrangement. So I'm hoping that's going to free some time up for me so I can get back on mic. I have quite a few ideas, both in the Star Trek realm and elsewhere. But if you'd like to hear my thoughts on things that have been going on, there's, of course, The Ready Room, which I do with Larry Nemechek. We do that roughly once a month this year. Uh, we're a little bit delayed in our next episode, but that'll be coming soon. 
There's also The Edge, where I'm covering season three. I'm very far behind on that, but I will be releasing episodes for each episode of the third season of Discovery. And then, of course, we do The Orb together, Matthew, where we talk Deep Space Nine. We'll we'll have some new episodes of that coming out as well in the new year. And I yeah, just have some other ideas for other things. So I'm hoping very much to get back on mic. And if you'd like to chat with me about Star Trek or anything, you can find me in social media. My username on Twitter is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. That's my username pretty much everywhere, but Twitter's where I'm most active. I'm not a big Facebook user. I do pop into the Babel conference, of course. But uh, if you want to find me anywhere on social media, Instagram or wherever, that is my username. See Brian Jones, and that's pretty much what I have going on. Well, we do want to say thank you to everyone for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.